All right. Good morning, everyone. We are passage as Mary just referred uh, today comes from John 3. We're going to start at verse 1. And when we get to verse 16, um, Christy's going to put those words right back up there. Uh, and I would like us all to say those words together again um, since we've been practicing them. Before I read, I want to remind us of a few things that happen before this story in the book of John. Uh, in chapter 2, which comes immediately before this, Jesus has performed his first sign. He turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And after enjoying that party with his friends, he headed to the temple courts in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. When he arrived at the temple, he found that God's house was surrounded by people who set up shop to sell animals to be sacrificed uh, for people to, to, to make, uh, make up for their sins. Jesus gets pretty upset at this. Uh, at this, this act of trying to make money off of people's desire to, to be right with God. And he drives out the livestock and the money changers from the temple court. While he's in the temple, he's confronted by the religious leaders who ask him to perform a sign that will show that he has authority for what he's been doing. And Jesus' re- reply is one of, of cryptic foreshadowing. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. These leaders, the Pharisees, are teachers who take Scripture very literally. But the Gospel writer John then points out to readers that Jesus is not speaking literally about the temple building, but he's speaking about his body, which would be crucified and rise again in three days. This marks the beginning of of what's going to become this long cat-and-mouse game between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the book of John. And that takes us to our passage. So let's read, starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus that night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And now read with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. My father spent most of his career as an emergency room physician. He met people in some of their worst, most traumatic moments, diagnosed their injuries, and treated them. He was an expert in his work. So this past February, when he experienced some pain in his own foot, he took a look at it, And he decided that the pain would pass if he just let it rest for a while. In fact, he was about to get on a plane and attend a conference, so he thought, I'm just going to be sitting and listening. That'll be be good. It'll rest. But that evening before before his flight, my mom, his wife, who is also a physician, convinced him that he, the expert emergency room physician, should go to the ER to be seen himself. His primary physician admitted him to the hospital and called in the podiatrist, the foot expert, and ordered a bone scan. He lifted up the x-ray film to reveal an infection in his bone. Instead of getting on the plane the next morning, my dad underwent emergency surgery to remove that infection. The surgeon reported that the infection was even worse than the bone scan had indicated and that if my dad had gone to the conference and waited to tend to his foot until after, he likely would have had to amputate. My dad, the medical expert, was humbled when he visited the expert foot doctor and learned that his reading of the symptoms was not adequate to heal himself. I wonder if that's something of what Nicodemus experienced in our Bible reading today. You see, Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. He was an expert scholar of the Hebrew scriptures and a teacher of the law. He was probably among those Jews who had questioned Jesus about driving the money changers out of the temple courts. He was one who carefully followed the letter of the law. He did a literal reading of every piece of scripture that had been handed down by the scribes generation after generation. He heard Jesus in the temple courts talking about the temple being destroyed And interpreted him literally. He knew that this destruction had happened before, when Jerusalem was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and its people exiled. It took 46 years to rebuild that time. So Nicodemus scoffed at the idea that this sacred building could be rebuilt in three days. We know that what Jesus did in the temple courts attracted people to start believing in him. They might have been drawn to a new sense of what it meant to seek religious purity. But this was not comfortable for the Pharisees, who were trying to keep their community in line with their careful reading of Scripture. As long as people made their sacrifices, it didn't matter so much how they got the animals. They were worried that Jesus might inspire people to some sort of revolt against the religious leaders or even the occupying Romans. But Nicodemus saw something in Jesus that prompted him to want to know more. So he snuck out to meet Jesus in the quiet intimacy of the night. Like my dad, the medical expert, Nicodemus, the religious expert, seeks out an even more expert opinion. 
Rabbi, teacher, he calls Jesus, acknowledging that even though Nicodemus knows the law forward and backward, Jesus may have something to teach him. He comes to Jesus and he makes a profession of faith. We know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus hears this profession of faith and he says something that boggles Nicodemus's mind. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Remember, Nicodemus is someone who interprets the word literally. He has a hard time understanding what Jesus is, is saying when he, says, when he said that he would rebuild the temple in three days, and this is even more perplexing. He thinks Jesus is literally saying that Nicodemus must crawl back into his mother's womb to be born again. So Jesus clarifies, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus again tries to make sense of what Jesus is saying with these metaphors. One thing that would be helpful for us all to know is that the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, can also be translated as wind. Pneuma appears five times in these few verses. And I'm not sure why almost every English translation that I looked at uses spirit in verses 5 and 6, switches to wind in ver- at the beginning of verse 8, and then back to spirit at the end of the same verse. Listen to Jesus' words in these verses translated in the Common English Bible. I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, it is not possible to enter God's kingdom. For whatever is born of flesh is flesh, whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I tell you you must be born anew. God's spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the spirit. As a church that believes in the Trinity, that, that God is, is Father, Son, and Spirit, we may be familiar with the idea that when the Holy Spirit is present in someone's life, we ought to expect the unexpected. The Spirit moves people to act in unpredictable ways in order to point those around them to God's kingdom. There's something fluid and free about the new life that comes when a believer is born anew in water and in spirit. And Jesus is using this figurative language to point to the message of a new and abundant life in the spirit. The outward sacrament of baptism that is a sign of the spirit's work through God's covenant promises. Still, Nicodemus is confused. When Jesus is pointing to a faith expression that has Baptist and Pentecostal elements, Nicodemus wants some systematic theology to back that up. So Jesus turns to something that Nicodemus would know very well. A story from the Torah featuring Moses, the celebrated prophet. The story of the bronze serpent. Nicodemus would have known this story very well uh, from from Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites have been wandering in the desert for almost 40 years. They have survived on manna and quail for generations. And just when they thought that the promised land was within their grasp, they've been instructed to reroute again, to go around the land of Edom. The people are weary, and they begin to grumble and murmur like their parents and grandparents before them. 
Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, Moses? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. The children of Israel have been delivered from slavery, and their nourishment has been provided for, and yet they rebel and they complain. And so God punishes them by unleashing poisonous snakes in their camp. The venom of these snakes burns in their bodies, and many of them die. Then the Israelites do something new, something they haven't done before. They confess that they have sinned when they complained to Moses and to God. They were not living lives of gratitude for God's deliverance and God's providence. And what happens, church, when the people confess their sin? God forgives them and provides a means to heal them from that which has afflicted them. In this case, God instructs Moses to do something that's sort of counterintuitive. This is the God who commanded the people, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is the God who punished the people for making a golden calf and worshiping it. But now God is telling Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and to lift up the pole. Why an image in the form of a serpent? Do you remember another place in the scripture that Nicodemus knows so well that features a serpent? Eden. Yes, the Garden of Eden. The story of the fall of humanity into sin. The crafty serpent coaxed Eve and Adam to bite into that fruit and rebel against God in the very beginning. Now, why is God offering an image of a serpent as a way to cure the people of their venomous bites? Nicodemus, our literal scripture interpreter, may have concluded that in this case, God was responding to the people's confession of sin with a reminder of sin's origin story. He also would have clarified that the people were not bowing down to the serpent image. They were looking up to it on a pole. And by doing so, they were looking up past it to God in heaven. As the source of healing. So maybe this is beginning to make sense to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Somehow Jesus, the Son of Man, would be lifted up, like that bronze serpent had been lifted up, lifted up on a pole for all the people to see, so that when people recognized the sin in their hearts that was burning like venom, they could look up to God and to God's Son and see their source of healing. Again, Jesus is foreshadowing here. He knows that he is going to be raised up on a pole and that his body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is going to be destroyed, but that three days later it will be raised again. I believe, though, that Jesus is referring referring here to more than just his crucifixion. He himself is the image of the invisible God, come in a human body. He is the new Adam 
like the serpent on the pole, he, his body is a memory of that origin story of sin. Where did sin come from? It wasn't actually the serpent that brought sin. Sin came from Adam and Eve themselves in their disobedience. As they took the fruit into their bodies, so the venom of sin has passed generation to generation into each of our bodies. And it is growing within us like the infection in my dad's foot, burning like the venom in the Israelites' bodies. And we need to turn and look up to Jesus for healing. For Jesus is lifted up as an example to us. The words lifted up could also be translated as exalted. The Son of Man is exalted as an example to us. He replaces Adam as the new image of humanity as God intended it. And Jesus' humanity is not displayed only in his death and his resurrection. It is displayed in the way that he lived his life. In the sharing of joy and fellowship around, around community celebrations like that wedding in Cana. In outrage at those who would exploit the poor in the name of religious piety in the temple courts. In that taboo conversation between Jesus as a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman that affirmed her humanity regardless of her ethnicity, her marital status, her gender. In the tender care for those whose disabilities, like paralysis and blindness, had kept them from participation in the full life of their communities. In the feeding of thousands of hungry men, women, and children. In the raising of Lazarus from the death, from the dead, in the willing acceptance of the extravagant anointing from a sinful woman, in the humble act of washing his disciples' feet. When we hold ourselves up in comparison to Jesus, we can begin to recognize the sin that's burning within our veins. We can see how short we fall from the perfection of Jesus. We recognize our need for healing from the greatest physician, we name that need by confessing our sin. And in response, by God's grace, we are able to die to ourselves. And in dying to ourselves, our sin is cleansed in the waters of our baptism. And we rise out of that water just as Jesus rose out of the grave, born anew to abundant life in God's Spirit. By God's grace, we are born again and can begin to see God's kingdom. By God's grace, we are born again in water and in spirit and can enter God's kingdom. By God's grace, our bodies are healed from the infectious venom of sin. By God's grace, Nicodemus heard these words and he believed. We know that later on, Nicodemus will stand up to his fellow Pharisees in defense of Jesus and that after Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus will be there to care for and to bury his body. He did these things because Nicodemus knew that God so loved the world, that God so loved us, his children, that God sent Jesus Christ, his one and only Son, the Son of Man, and that Jesus is lifted up, exalted before us, so that whoever looks up to him and believes in him, will not perish from that infectious venom of sin, but will live a full, 
and abundant life in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this morning you created this amazing— we thank you on this morning that you created this amazing world, this vast cosmos, that your love for it is so much that you sent your Son, Jesus, into this world to dwell among us as a human being like us. Thank you, God, that in Jesus we can experience healing of our bodies. We pray that we might follow the example of your life so that together with all of your children we can experience joyous fellowship, that we can experience justice in the face of oppression and exploitation, that we can be affirmed in our humanity, regardless of our ethnicity, national origin, immigration status, marital status, or gender of our bodies. That no matter the abilities we bring to the body of Christ, we can be embraced as siblings. That we can experience provision of food when our bodies are malnourished. That even in the face of bodily death, we have confidence in the resurrection. That together in the company of other sinners, we can experience your anointing that we can serve one another in humility. God, thank you that because of Jesus, we can confess our sins, we die to ourselves, and can be born again each day in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending your Spirit to empower us, to dwell among us, to encourage us, to work through us. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.